you are listening to Single Sirs. My name is Arno Marturi, and I am your host. Single Service is a podcast dealing with design, architecture, business, and city building in which I interview an expert on a specific subject matter. Together, we dive into that topic and challenge conventional thinking in a thought-provoking conversation. I sincerely hope that you will find these conversations as engaging as I did and learn a thing or two in the process. Don't forget to send us your comments, criticism, and praise. To do so, you can email us at hello at rvltr.studio or leave a comment online. You can also subscribe to the podcast on our website at rvltr.studio. Hello, everyone. I'm Arno Marchere. And I'm Peter Sobjack. And you're listening to a podcast collaboration between Canadian Interior's Bevel Podcast and Revelator Studios' Single Serves. Today, we're talking to Tessa Bain and Andrew Lane, the co-founders of Digby, a tech startup and consultancy for the architecture, design, and luxury industries. And the topic of the day is Web3, the metaverse, and NFTs, and how these affect the architecture and design industry. So thank you very much, Andrew and Tessa, for being on the show. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure to be here. So why don't you start by telling us who you are and what you do in your own words in three sentences or less? Three sentences or less is kind of difficult. It's tough. <laughs> um, I've spent about 10 years in the interior design and architecture world, always on the supplier side. So working um, from commercial textiles to furniture. And that sort of naturally helped me gravitate towards uh, how we can apply this to Web3 technologies. Yeah. And so my background is in tech consulting, brand building, uh, and a little bit of talent consulting as well. Um, but, you know, I did this uh, as an independent consultant at the dawn of Web2 and really brought some top Canadian brands uh, online into the social media space. And so we saw the opportunity to put those experiences together uh, and really help to, you know, create some education and opportunities for brands in the architecture, design, and luxury space who are looking to uh, put an early foothold in the, some of this new territory. That was more than three sentences. That was. I got called out. I'm sorry. It's okay. Nobody's counting. Um, so I'd like to start with a few kind of basic definitions of what we're talking about. So can you tell us uh, briefly what is Web3? I think Web3 is, a, is an interesting thing. And you'll, we'll find this across a lot of these definitions that the definitions aren't, you know, Merriam-Webster's quite yet. Um, they're really being written by the people who are creating. And so Web3 is fairly broadly agreed to be a combination of leveraging blockchain technology, uh, tokenization. Um, a lot of people think Web3 is cryptocurrency, but in fact, cryptocurrency just leverages a lot of those principles. And so the two have become more synonymous. You'll also find people who will call artificial intelligence uh, a bit of uh, a factor of Web3. And there's others who just say it's a tech emerging at this time. So we don't quite know exactly what the definition will land on, but it's really about a lot of emerging technology that people will think, people believe will build on top of what we um, saw created through the Web2 uh, revolution. So are, what would be the main differences between Web2 and Web3? Well, Web 2 is really about socialization, um, whereas Web 3, um, you know, the, the, the concept of tokens and the concept of decentralization is really critical when you start thinking about things like identity. Um, so whether that's the identity of an object, um, oftentimes these uniquely identified objects are thought of as NFTs. Um, but they can also be, uh, identity can also be about personal identity. So uh, we think of a decentralized Web3 as a place where you can own your personal identity. Whereas in Web2, uh, one of the primary factors was 
organizations like Facebook owned your identity. And so that's one of the critical pieces that people see as a differentiator of Web3. And one of the primary ideas behind things like cryptocurrency that we're also starting to see applied in, in lots of other places. So that helps clarify a little bit. So I'm glad I asked that question. Uh, I have two more kind of definitional questions for you. The second question is, what are NFTs? And I think that's one of the most kind of obfuscating uh, of those technologies that people get really confused by. So can you clarify that for us a bit? Yeah, I think that there's a belief that an NFT is a monkey or a piece of art that's put on the internet. And, you know, some people think it's nothing more than a JPEG. But really, an NFT stands for a non-fungible token. It means that it's a one-of-one one original piece that has been authenticated on the blockchain. So when we think about it in that broader term, um, there's a lot more interesting implications for what an NFT can be than what we've seen really consume the media over the last 18 months. Uh, and the last definitional question I have for you is what is the metaverse? Ooh, that's a tough one. Yeah, similarly with Web3, the metaverse is one of those places where the companies that are building are, are trying to define it uh, in the way that really suits what it is they're trying to build and who they're trying to build for. I think the big tenets of the, of the metaverse is that it's a three-dimensional immersive space. Some people call the metaverse the spatial web. Um, that it has some level of persistence. So it's, it's an always-on space in the same way that a, a store in the world uh, or any building or location um, might be. And that it's a place where uh, one or more people, two or more people, I should say, are able to interact uh, within that space. You'll get other definitions that say it needs to be tied to NFTs, to blockchain and things. But um, the broader base definition is really this idea of spatial web, taking what we have already as an internet experience and expanding it into something that's more three-dimensional and interactive. When I try and put it in simple terms and explain it to friends, I always think about uh, all the different platforms that we use right now. So, for example, we could be on a Zoom call or we could be looking at a virtual uh, VR experience and we could be on social media. And so the metaverse gives you the opportunity to do all of those things at once instead of in individual platforms. And so we kind of look at it as that evolution. I just had my haha moment. So thank you for that. Yeah. Um, so now that those definitions are out of the way, why do you think it's important for designers to understand the implications of those technologies? I think it's incredibly important for designers. And so you've got these technologies have been uh, underway for quite a while and you have very prominent metaverses. And in the early days of Digby, we saw this as a, as a big opportunity for the A&D community, being mostly that there is a huge opportunity to create a presence and to stake a claim for people that are trained and skilled and have the ability to actually uh, positively influence the space and the design of these spaces. Um, and so without that representation, you've got tech developers that are actually creating the majority of the designs and infrastructure in these spaces right now. And the architecture and design community has been a little slower to respond. And so we're seeing a lot more of that now. But in the early days, there was a bit of a gap there. Yeah, I think it's been exciting to see the early projects. And I think that we're really starting to see the snowball roll down the hill right now, um, where the, the degree to which designers and architects um, from the more traditional space are getting involved in these uh, Metaverse and Web3 projects is, is, is really exciting. Um, lots of new businesses and projects are launching on an ongoing basis and scan the papers and you're seeing more and more of them every day, which 12 months ago, uh, it was much fewer and further between. So we're really starting to see that, that marriage start to, to catch on and it's something that's exciting to be a part of. So 
the, your answer was great, but it's it's a bit vague in my mind because I can't really picture what those um, new businesses and opportunities and technologies look like. So maybe you can give us a few examples of what you've seen that seems promising or you're excited by. Well, I think we need to break it down and go back to the beginning. And when we say there hasn't been strong representation, I mean, Andrew, you can speak about this, about the fourth grade art project is one of the best examples. And Yeah, I, I think that where we're seeing projects come along is in a couple of different ways. There's instances where people are designing metaverse uh, experiences, homes, worlds for people who are interested in acquiring space within the metaverse. So it's, it's, it's metaverse land is seen as a commodity these days. And there are those who want it, they want a house in the metaverse and they want a for prominent, prominent designer or architect to have created that house because it adds to the cachet and to the emotional resonance of that place for them. We're seeing a lot more brands try and move into the metaverse from a commerce space. Uh, when they're moving into that commerce space, someone needs to design what that experience looks like and how that brings their light, their brand to life in a 3D virtual way. Uh, and so firms are being leaned on for those kinds of experiences uh, in an increasing way. We're even at the NFT level seeing uh, more and more objects and items that are being created from a digital standpoint. But then um, we're also starting to see those objects and items simply leverage that, uh, that token technology to authenticate physical world items. So we're starting to see people bridge, bridge between that physical and that digital world as well. Um, using this technology and all of these sorts of projects um, are really coming to bear quickly because um, the reality is is that the industry has had an awful lot of three-dimensional digital design uh, be a part of the projects that they've developed for the real world for a very long time. Um, one of the more prominent uh, of the early part of 2022, one of the more prominent projects was the Bjarke Ingels Group. Uh, designed uh, a, an office for Vice in the metaverse, which was actually just a project that they had designed digitally previously that when Vice came to them, they brought that to life in the Decentraland metaverse. Uh, but it was something that they had already designed previously but had never built. Um, so we're seeing all sorts of different instances of that as well as completely net new designs and net new ideas coming to life at an increasing and accelerating pace as we come um, through uh, the year 2022. So you've already hinted at why um, it would be important for designers and architects to be involved in the development of those new technologies. But uh, maybe you can tell us a little more about why this is particularly important and, and why should they strive to be at the forefront of those conversations? Well, I think return to work is a perfect example of an application. I mean, we're all, uh, if you're a commercial designer, a corporate commercial, um, your interest right now is in helping your clients. And so if they are attempting to get people to come back to work in a hybrid fashion, how do we create virtual spaces that could utilize some of this technology and create for better inclusiveness, let's say when someone is in the office physically and then you have uh, people there virtually? Or how do you onboard uh, people virtually? So for employee retention, we've seen companies have a hard time uh, keeping their employees engaged. And so these virtual technologies have actually been tools that they've been able to use to create and express brand culture across that in, in corporation. And so, for example, you could see that in onboarding, or we think even the opportunity for designers specifically would be to extend out their physical spaces. So an investment that a client's making, let's say, in their very high-end CEO boardroom or in their lobby and amenity spaces could be somehow conveyed virtually and 
extended there so that everywhere, everyone, whether you're there physically or virtually, could have that same experience. Like a company like Microsoft that has a product like Teams that is fairly, I, I think, universally known, but also a lot of people would say Teams and Zoom and products like that, you know, have an awful lot of opportunity to improve. Um, don't fool yourself to think that Microsoft isn't taking that Teams product and expanding it into this space and trying to turn it into something that's much more 360 and immersive. I always give the example that a, a, a very unheralded application of Teams during the pandemic was when the NBA shut down its league. They actually used the Teams product to bring virtual fans to the game and be able to see the court from their webcam and then Conversely, the people who were playing the game in the stadium could actually see the fans on a digital projection screen as though they were sitting in actual chairs. That's an example of a hybrid immersive experience that's really the tip of the iceberg of where some of this stuff can go when we think about future work and collaboration. And if I'm sitting in, you know, the shoes of an A&D firm, I'm thinking about the next stages of where my business is going and how I'm going to innovate. I'm thinking, okay, how do I create that value and express that service offering to these clients that are looking for this? I mean, further in retail, um, you know, there's been a lot of consulting documents out lately that show that a consumer demands a new experience for retail. And so if I am a retail designer, how do I start to communicate this to the to my client and networking group and say, hey, we offer this service um, and we can offer you these tools both physically and digitally to enhance your retail experience? So it sounds to me that the most promising applications or, or kind of ideas reside in the hybrid world where you're in the physical space, but it's enhanced with digital technologies. Because I'm I'm still having a really hard time imagining, maybe except maybe for a very narrow part of the population to spend their whole time in the metaverse and in purely virtual worlds. Is that a fair assessment? And, and do you want to speak a little more to that? I think that's absolutely fair. And I think that you're not the only one who has a hard time imagining spending their entire time uh, in a virtual world. That's something that is spoken about in kind of any any kind of publication that we'd read about, any kind of industry conversations that we have on the technology side as well, is this is really about, if you think about the end-to-end -end experience of, uh, of, your, of your personal experience and your life, where are the moments of utility? Where are the points of utility? So we learned through the pandemic that being in the office five days a week isn't necessarily the best use of everyone's time. So how do we rethink the utility of the work experience so that there are physical moments and there are digital moments and we optimize design for both of those? I think that you will you know, start to see more of those in terms of personal interactions, in terms of retail interactions, in terms of educational experiences. Um, there's really going to be a lot more focus on hybrid where people will be dipping in and out of these tools more seamlessly as the technology becomes better. Um, you'll hear a lot about the Apple AR glasses and the AR glasses that people are developing. AR glasses are another extension of all of this that's really about how can we more seamlessly blend physical and digital experiences to allow people to kind of optimize their time and optimize their experience, whether they're trying to shop, learn, play, work. Um, any of these areas will be areas where we'll see disruption. And it's a bit clunky right now. I mean, if you put on Oculus headset, for example, or any sort of wearable if you put on any type of wearable right now, uh, you know, there'll be a warning that you shouldn't have it on for longer than a few hours, and that's because it's too disorienting. And so we believe in an evolution. I mean, it'll be interesting to see where it goes, where it will become much more seamless in a hybrid layering over physical life, and the ability to translate in and out will be much more efficient and less, less barriers, I guess. 
you didn't ask the question, uh, but I'll, I'll jump in to say that at the top of the house, the amount of venture capital and technology money that's been put into this space, the degree to which everyone from like companies like Facebook, which has literally changed the name of their company to reflect their bet here, to companies like Microsoft that I mentioned, but all the processing companies, they're all very, very all in um, on this space because they truly believe that this is where the world is going to go. So that clunkiness is going to is going to fade away. And the technology is going to improve. And that's why we're real evangelists of the message uh, to the architecture and design community to get in and be a part of the experience now. Because there is going to be a time when the tools more than meet the needs for anyone who's skeptical right now. And that time will come a lot more quickly um, than any of us will actually be be prepared for. So I'm going to jump in here because I've been listening to all this and as fascinating as it is and relevant as it is, I'm noticing that we're talking a lot about the value of the virtual world as a way to uh, compress the distances between creative uh, entities and collaboration and work together, which is great. But as we've as we've already spoken about and realized, that has been the groundwork for that has been laid already. People are not uh, scared of Zoom or Teams or any of those tools. And if the metaverse just makes that experience. Uh, more enjoyable, more practical, more productive. Great. I want to change the tune here a bit, though, and now talk about actual practical, um, or f- I should say physical uh, entities, meaning products. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked a bit at the top of this conversation about NFTs, so I want to bring that up, put it on the table f- for discussion, because what I've been hearing a lot about and what I'd love to hear from you guys is uh, the value of uh, how NFT can help with issues of ownership. Um, we know that counterfeiting is a big problem in the product design world, uh, and this sounds like an interesting um, you know, tool to combat that. So maybe we can talk a bit about that. Can you kind of open the door for us and explain how blockchain and NFTs can help good old-fashioned product designers who make a chair and then get tired of seeing it uh, show up at trade shows or completely uh, cannibalized by uh, – counterfeit companies? Yeah, this is a really great question, something that we're super passionate about. So my background, I mean, I shared earlier, but it's really been in design furniture. And so everything that I've represented in the past and everything in the in the future has a design story and it's authored and it's authentic. And so this is something early on that we started paying a lot of attention to. And how do we use blockchain and an NFT to show provenance on a physical product design? And it's something that we're exploring. And, and there's a variety of different ways that you can look at applying NFTs specifically to the entire process. Um, but this is just something that we have started early days investigating. Yeah, so we're working on a couple of pilots with manufacturers right now around this. Um, there's different ways that people think about it. You know, you can design, if you're a product designer, you can design from the ground up the ability to uniquely identify your physical product. Um, if a physical product has any kind of a unique identifier on it, it's, it's actually quite easy um, to be able to translate that into uh, a, a complementary identifier on the blockchain. You know, really where we foresee this going is in a couple of ways. One, that you're going to be able to see manufacturers and designers be able to actually verify the product right out of the gate so that people know that they're buying the authentic item. We think that that's going to have an incredible impact in secondary market. 
um, when, you know, organizations like a first dibs are going to be able to actually verify that this is an original design by this designer or originally manufactured by this manufacturer um, and that it's not a knockoff. Because I think that obviously when you start to get into e-commerce and things like that, that's where some of that confusion takes on another level altogether because the consumer at a certain point is just looking for a certain look. Um, when you can actually tell them why, they're paying a premium and actually show that to be authenticated to the blockchain. We think that that's a really powerful story for the industry to tell around counterfeiting and something that, you know, as I said, we're piloting and we don't think is that far off because there are so many parties uh, who are really interested in, in being able to verify uh, that authenticity. Uh, and we think it's going to be something that we'll start to think about in an industry from the, from the very design production layer um, in the very, very near future. But where are we now? Like right now, where are we now in this whole stage? Are there actual tools out there that small-scale, one, two-man operations can either buy or engage in where using – they can get blockchain um, – I don't even see this. This is where I sort of lose the ability to even articulate it because I'm not aware, like, uh, up on how this whole thing works. But mm -hmm. stumbling through the, the the language as best I can, I'm wondering if if uh, you know a small uh, studio, two three person operation can have can buy or have access to a blockchain technology that can do all the stuff you just said. That sounded a bit like the tone was we're, we're getting there. But I'm wondering. Are we there yet? Are we there now? Can we can turn can it a, on? Yeah. Can a Fig Forty, for instance, who does uh, contract furniture for Neen Camper, can they, t you know, turn it on, sort of thing? Yeah, that's something that we can turn on today uh, with something as simple as. Uh, an Excel sheet that has your order numbers um, that are being produced on it, and those can be those order numbers can be translated into effectively NFTs um, that would allow a consumer to log in with that order number and generate a certificate of authenticity that links it back to the blockchain. And that can be done in a pretty low-cost way. Those costs drive down with volume, obviously, so that's something that's happening. And the end-to-end -end experience of also integrating with the resellers is really where we're talking about when we say we're getting there, um, because it, what, what it really needs is the full ecosystem participating. So the way that it's happening right now is in, is in one-offs. Um, that's very much where we're focused, because you got to start somewhere, but it's not a cost prohibitive uh, activity at this point. To the actual cost to mint an NFT is negligible. Um, it's really just about making sure that you can also layer it in with some technology that'll allow the end consumer to be able to claim their NFT and have something that feels meaningful to them. And that's really um, the experience layer that we're focused on as far as, as far as the pilots that we're working on. So that kind of makes sense to me and I see how NFTs would help with determining the provenance of a, a, a product or an object and, and that's very clear is it also is there are there also opportunities for nfts to help manufacturers prevent manufacturing of knockoffs or is that something that's always going to happen and you can't really stop it because for people who want the real thing they'll be able to say, okay, this is a real one, this isn't, so I'm going to buy the real one and pay a premium for it. But I believe that there's always going to be people who are going to want the cheap knockoff because, like you said earlier, they just want the look or the, the aesthetic. They don't want the real product. 
I think counterfeiting will continue to be an issue. I think until we change our government regulations and, you know, what we're willing to accept, I mean, what is it? It's within a 10 degrees of variation on a product design in North America, or, you know, don't quote me directly, but around that number, um, you know, that needs to change. But I think that having the NFT as part of your arsenal to combat counterfeiting is going to be something that will be expected in the future. Yeah, unfortunately, the technology hasn't gotten its law enforcement badge just yet. But uh, we do think that it, the the ability to truly show provenance is something that doesn't currently exist, and it's not a difficult gap to fill with this technology. You know, having been in design furniture, too, for years, you take a chair like a wishbone, for example, and, you know, here in North America, you you have a friend saying, oh, I really want this chair, and they've just put it into Google. And the fact that they can keep the name um, a, a counterfeit company that's creating a, a likeness or a replica can use the same name and design attachment. That's a bit of an issue. So how do we use these NFTs and how do we communicate that it's attached to an authentic NFT and use that as a tool to educate a consumer. Because to your point, if you are part of the niche group that understands the value of design and authentic furniture and, and, and objects, you'll be already looking for that. How do you communicate to someone who just doesn't know um, and hasn't experienced it, what the difference is and the value behind it? Mm-hmm. And I think resellers will be incentivized by that because if they have that mark and that system is truly end-to-end, that experience layer is, is further built out, they're going to be able to charge a premium. Uh, in order to ensure that the person gets the authentic good. And I think that that's, that's something that benefits the entire ecosystem. Uh, the other thing that'll be really interesting about that is you theoretically be able to see the ownership chain of a product that's gone through a couple of, of, of different sales and passed hands a few different times. And that might become something that's really exciting when you're talking about a particular piece of design that's been owned by a particular celebrity or whatever the case might be. Some of those things um, could actually really help to spur a, an authentic resale market. Or, or even sustainability story. I mean, if you can actually go sh- like show that an office chair has been in four different office locations before taken to its end of life uh, post-recycling and you can prove it using blockchain, how cool, that's a great story. Not just you know from the fact that it's really interesting, but because we can actually actually actively show the path and the trail that something is, has been on. So you've just alluded to that, the the NFT's ability to demonstrate the chain of ownership and kind of the whole history of an object, product, or creation. Can you speak a little bit to its ability to generate revenue in perpetuity for the creators? Because I'm a creator, and um, specifically photography and licensing is always kind of a thorny issue. So I'm, I'm really interested in, in hearing about its ability to say uh, uh, you're a creator and you, you put out some art out there or something that you've created and people kind of pass it down from hand to hand and that generating um, kind of ongoing revenue for the creator. I'm going to let Andrew speak on that specifically, but I think this is a good opportunity to loop back to, you know, a loose definition of what Web3 is and its power to the creator. And so it's creating those revenue opportunities for the original creator um, to see those in perpetuity over the course of uh, that product or, or service offering changing hands. And you can speak specifically about. Yeah, the text behind the NFT um, is often referred to as a smart contract. Um, and really all that's doing is it can be set up at minting at the creation to say, um, 
X person was the creator of this, and every time that it changes hands, X person is going to get 2% of the resale or whatever the case might be. Um, that's already happening in a major way in, in the art and in the art NFT space, um, it's been one of the uh, driving factors behind the growth of things like the Board Ape Yacht Club, which is one of probably the most sort of uh, celebrated and reviled uh, NFT projects out there. But the reality is, is that the people who were the initial creators have, you know, continued to sustain a huge, huge revenue influx through the resale at inflated prices of these products. Um, and so that's really common in the digital art space, and it's something that we think has the potential to translate itself across because it. it it is working as a model already. And, and I think that's a very interesting thought because it will incentivize the creators to create something that has less, more lasting value. Not to say that they're not already doing it, but um, to, to kind of piggyback on your example of the Board Ape Yacht Club, um, I'm not particularly interested in that kind of side of NFTs because I think it's... The way I've seen it initially, it's like it's just... Uh, a new technology that people are getting really excited about and it gets a lot of hype, but it's going to die down. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm more interested in is the, the long lasting value that creators can create and kind of enhance or, or support with NFTs and get some of that back in the process. So that, that's a very fascinating thing. Um, did, you, did you want to add anything to that? I think the only note that I would add is, is one of the, the barriers right now is there's, there's friction points within the industry, right? So everything from, uh, you know, the manufacturer not having a way to individually identify each product or each batch of products that come off the line, depending on what their production process looks like, through to how um, the authenticity of that production batch is translated through any middlemen that actually bring it to an end consumer. Like from a B2C standpoint, this is a little bit smoother. Um, when you start to get into B2B processes where you have different distributors and dealers and, and, and different players like that, um, it can get a little messier to, to figure these things out. And we mentioned earlier the idea that there will need to be a bit of a conscious thought of production process from the beginning in order to really optimize how this will work in the future. I think that's really where one of the areas that uh, needs to be worked through the most right now is happening, is how is it that we are actually able to know that this is the this one of one chair, it's tied to this particular NFT, and these are the times that it passes hands. So the actual um, development of that process is a data forward piece that not all small manufacturers uh, and designers have really embraced up to this point and something that they'll need to embrace if they want to be able to take advantage of this technology in a seamless way and create a great experience for those end consumers who are buying and reselling the products. So I want to zoom back a bit and, and go back to the idea of Web3 uh, in general and what we've seen with Web2, um, I'm going to use Twitter as an example because they're so easy to uh, to make fun of. But uh, <laughs> Twitter is generally thought of a platform that very few people engage in, but the ones who do are like rabidly mm -hmm. um, doing so. And they spend all their day on Twitter and like frantically Twittering at, at people getting angry and getting into arguments. I'm, I'm exaggerating a bit, but that's by and large what it is. And there's an entire segment of the population that's not even on Twitter, doesn't even think about it. Um, is that going to be an issue with Web3? And are there ways to make whatever technologies come out of there more accessible, 
uh, more appealing to the broader population and not just people that are into tech or into very narrow segments of industry that are on those platforms and, and use them uh, um, regularly? So it's a great question. I think that the, the Twitter example, you know, it's a specific platform that you have to go to. And that's part of why, it, you know, it's always going to have a level of adoption problems. Like there can only be one Facebook and even Facebook isn't Facebook anymore. I guess TikTok is Facebook now. But Web3, when it's going to work really, really well, it's going to be seamless. And so right now, uh, there are some clunky elements to it. But when it's seamless, um, you produce a piece of furniture uh, and then consumer purchases that piece of furniture um, right with the, the way they would have a warranty card. Maybe they scan a QR code and it takes them to an opportunity where they click a, a really simple button and they're able to register their NFT. Um, when they go to resell that piece of furniture, um, that's going to be the reseller sites are going to seamlessly accept uh, some, some you know, uh, digital uh, example of that token that's going to allow it to show up on that reseller site in a way that makes it really clear to all the end buyers um, that that is authenticated. It's also going to transfer back proceeds from that end sale back to the original uh, designer of that piece. Like there's there's a, a little ways to go before that becomes a really seamless process, um, but that's when Web three is really going to succeed when that is the case. I, I mentioned identity at the very very beginning. You know, you're going to have the promise at least is people will have the ability to really seamlessly choose which identity they pass, which pieces of their identity they pass along. Um, in order, uh, in order to transact with a brand, and they're going to be incentivized to provide those pieces of information, rather than in the current state where you know Facebook knows every movie that you've ever watched, and you're really not profiting from that in any way, other than the fact that you can log into some websites a little bit more easily. But then they know all your data too. So that level of ownership um, that Tess mentioned earlier will become this seamless background piece. Um, and if we go to the metaverse example, the technology will make it so that you'll be able to much more seamlessly transition in and out of digital and physical interactions. And you really won't notice it in the way that you notice, hey, I'm going to like make a conscious effort to go on Twitter um, right now to bring it back to your original example. And so we really think that's the future state. I'm going to take a minute here and circle back to a word you used earlier, which caught my ear and I've been noodling since we've been talking, you use the word ecosystem. Whenever I hear ecosystem, I think there's, there's layers of engagement. There's, uh, uh, you know, animals that are food for other animals. Everything feeds into itself uh, is an awkward metaphor, but I'm just thinking that I, I kind of want to circle a little farther back into the, the chain of, uh, consumption start with awareness because we're talking a, a lot about concepts that um, members of the industry that Arno and I are are involved with. This this is like this beyond foreign. This is it's hard for them to wrap their head around. You're seeing us struggle even with the language, but it's probably safe to say that early adopters or you know kids in their twenties or something who grew up. Uh, uh, with video games and whatever, this is probably a little more natural for them. Um, and I'm wondering how that could play into the next five or seven years as that generation comes out of design school and starts to start their own firms, and this is a little more natural to them. I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about what you think that culture, how that, will ch how that ripple effect will change the design culture moving forward. 
and it, it it touches a bit on issues of recruitment, uh, and in a way, even if you want to expand the discussion to a larger form, is uh, you know how design itself could be impacted, and what industries will be poaching design, or vice versa who design will be poaching because of an awareness and an understanding about how this universe works. I, I love that question. Um, that's a core message that, you know, we try to share whenever we can is that um, kind of to put it bluntly and, and flatly, there's no guarantee that in the future that the architecture and design industry is going to be the preeminent place for the most talented designers in the world to want to go when they graduate school. Um, the tools that people are coming up with, the kids that are right now making worlds in Minecraft and Roblox, the 12 and 14-year-olds, they're going to be professionals kind of in that next seven, eight years before you blink your eye. And universities and colleges are already adapting to this. We're already working with a couple of different schools in our, in our daily work who have professors that are creating incredible opportunities for students to create in these worlds for all sorts of, of different purposes. Um, well, we said off the top that there's an opportunity, the opportunity for the design industry to get engaged um, and start to build these worlds. That opportunity also translates to talent, right? If, if the design industry doesn't embrace these tools and the most talented design minds of the future are coming up using them, what happens when they do graduate from school? Are they going to want to go to architecture firms? Or are they going to want to go to game design companies? Are they going to want to go to the technology design companies? And, and do those companies start to take over uh, the way that the, the digital world is designed. Um, I think that's a really interesting consideration, an important consideration, because all signs point to the digital world becoming an increasingly prominent place where people are spending their time, even if it is only transiently. Um, there are going to need to be people who create those designs, and there are going to need to be people who think about the way the digital and physical worlds interact with one another. Um, so we, we would hope that this industry would be at the forefront of that, but there is no guarantee. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts about uh, whether you see a rift happening between the traditional aspect of design architecture, which deals with the physical world, like building buildings and designing interiors and getting them uh, built, versus the digital world where all those kids are getting involved in, in new technologies and designing offices and buildings in, in the virtual space. And... What are the implications for the more traditional practices of architecture and design? I wouldn't say that one is more important than the other. And I think this goes back to our earlier conversation on firms becoming more innovative and how do you take value in both. And I see them actually, from my perspective, uh, being very interwoven. And so using all of these tools um, would help the processes for physical buildings and physical spaces. You're seeing like Zaha Hadid and Bjarke Ingels Group come out with these headline-grabbing sort of experiments even in the space. Um, that's them also planting a flag and saying, you know, we're going to be a part of, of defining how uh, how this future is going to work. And we're going to be a place that talent is going to look to to come and be a part of that as well. It's It's interesting when you go on like the Discord forums and places like that. Um, in places that are talking about metaverse architecture, there's always uh, an opportunity to put your hand up if you're actually a licensed architect when you're in those forums. And there's usually a reasonable 20, 30% of the people that are there are actually architects who are there, whether being 
curious or actually having moved and started to really exclusively design for digital spaces. But there certainly are smaller scale examples, not just, you know, the, those big headline grabbing ones of where that, that chasm isn't really a chasm. There are people who are crossing over it. Um, but we do find, broadly speaking, at firms that there is, whether it's uh, a hesitancy or uh, a lack of belief, um, that you know, not everyone's diving in headfirst. Uh, and so there might be some who are a little bit left behind when it comes to that transition. Um, that's not to say... <laughs> We're going to keep building buildings. We're going to keep sitting on chairs. You know, these things are going to persist. Um, but there is a, a big opportunity and uh, I think a creatively exciting opportunity here right now um, that we are starting to see large firms. We are starting to see individuals. Um, and we're certainly starting to see um, young up and coming uh, individuals exploring. So this might be a question more for you, Tessa, because you're a designer. Um, Not a designer. Or you worked in the design yeah. industry. Sorry. Um, do you think the way of designing in the physical world is similar to the digital world or are they completely different? Because the reason I'm asking is architects are trained a certain way, designers as well. And, and they think in terms of, you know, we have to deal with the laws of physics. Mm -hmm. There's no escaping that. In the digital world, you don't have to. You, you may want to, but you don't have to. So how does that impact the way people are going to design? That's a really good question. And I keep giving this answer to everything, and it's both. Um, I think that we don't have to maybe define it one way or the other. And so when you look at if I am a corporate office and I'm looking to extend my identity into the digital space and offer that service to all of my employees, I'm thinking about Something that's not too offensive right out the gate, meaning we want to come into a meeting room. We, I mean, Andrew uses this example all the time. In a boardroom, there's a table and there's chairs, not because we need to actually physically sit in this boardroom in the digital space, but because we need to understand how to position ourselves in the room. And so you have the opportunity to, again, extend, extend something that mirrors a physical environment or is a version of a physical environment that you could extend. I also see the opportunity for certain companies that their identity is a little more progressive or maybe it's edgy or they're, they want to do something wild. I mean, they have the opportunity to then create something completely different and maybe uh, fantasy-based and, and something that could be something unlike anything we've ever seen here. Same goes to product design. You know, you don't need to have a four-legged chair in a digital space. So how do we start using that to influence our design? Uh, you know, there's an Un unlimited opportunity there when you start to think about digital design. Uh, but you could also say, I mean, there's an example, the pedal chair by Mui with Andreas Reisinger. He actually created that in a virtual and digital space first. And then Mui picked it up and created the physical version when they didn't think it was possible. So it really plays off of, of one another. That opens a lot more questions than it answers, but um, I don't think it's relevant for this conversation. Plus, we don't have time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the next podcast. Uh, that's kind of all the questions I had. Peter, is there anything you want to ask? Well, yeah. I mean, if you don't mind, um, I kind of want to know a little bit more about Digby. So if you don't mind, I want to sort of put you on the spot. And I'm curious. It's a two-pronged question, and they're not antagonistic questions, so relax. But uh, – you know, you any any company operating any company that's in this sphere, you're at the forefront. And I hate using you know fancy words, but in this case, it's actually true. You are like at the front of the line, and everyone else is behind you, so to speak. Um, so it's a two prong question. My question is, 
uh, what kind of questions or, or, yeah, let's just start with what kind of questions are you fielding from your clients now? Uh, and what do you think that the, the, the type of questions are going to be five years from now? So I know it's a tough thing because no one has a crystal ball, but there's a, there, any good business has to do a little forecasting. I'm wondering, you know, in, in, in any way you want to, to, to talk about it, how you're handling clients fielding their questions now? And do you think the questions are going to be the same five years, seven years from now? Or do you think it's going to be a whole new landscape? And to add a little spin to this, like I know a lot of uh, the way, you know, Arnaud t- uh, made a good point about architects and designers that work in the, the practical, physical realm. Their questions are, well, how do I get this piece of lumber for cheap? And that's the same question now as it was five years ago, and it will be five years from now. Those kind of questions don't really change. Yeah. Is there an overlap? Like, so not to just over overlay overload you with the asking the same question in different words. But what are you getting now? What do you think you'll get in five years from now? So I think that's interesting. You you did this yourself earlier. I don't know if we'll edit out or not. But you know, having the the understanding what the question is that you want to ask is probably the biggest thing that we feel right now, to be perfectly honest. Like we're helping people to ask the right questions for the most part, because they don't know how they just say, this is something we want to try. Or, you know, with an architecture firm, it's this company came to us and asked us if we could design this in some sort of a metaverse. What do we ask them? Like, what should we say to them next? Can you help us figure that out? So that's a huge part of what we do is just help people to understand what are the questions that they should be asking because it's not about a piece of lumber. Um, Those questions start to become pretty irrelevant pretty fast. But it's about what is this you actually want to do with the space? How many many people do you want to bring there? you know, how how uh, how persistent is it going to be on 24-7? Is it something that you're doing because you're trying to sell something? Or is it something you're doing because you're trying to create community and loyalty? Is it something that you're doing because you're trying to um, just be a part of this conversation and create some buzz for yourself? So a lot of the questions that we're getting are just like, what are the questions I should ask? How should I start? Um, and that's really been... Uh, the, the, the place where we've been able to provide the most value to our clients is to help them take the first couple steps. Um, and then very quickly, they start to realize that when you're designing for a different world, a lot of those constraints go away. And that's when they can start to have a little bit of fun um, because then it's when their imagination and creativity can take over. Did you add anything to that? Just that it's about utility. I mean, you said it. So in other words, it's just it's very important to identify the why. And, and what's the utility that you're looking to gain? Is it exploring or is there a true business purpose um, to what you're doing? And so we start there. So that sort of answers the first part of the question, mm-hmm. what you're uh, encountering now in the here and now. I kind of feel like that's not going to change five years from now, even though the technology might. So, Andrew, to your point, if you're saying that you're trying to educate your clients to ask the right questions, well, that's the phrase that architects have been Using for decades, millennia, even. I don't know how far back architecture goes, but pyramids, yeah, millennia. Their job is someone comes to me and says, I want to build something. And an architect says, Well, let's first start with the why, right? Mm -hmm. Are you asking the right questions? Should you build a condo on this piece of property or should it be something else? I'm just, that's a random reference. But I'm wondering to my second question is there going to be a whole new set of questions, a whole new set of client issues you think you're going to be hopefully or unfortunately having to deal with five, seven years from now? To put it another way, is is this going to now be so common that you're not going to have to teach people how to ask the right questions? They'll already know how to ask those questions. 
I mean, I think that the way we've, we've set ourselves up will always have an element of that. Like education is one of the things that we've, you know, really been trying to, to lead with as an organization. So I think some of that will, will never go away to your point. Um, but, you know, in, in five years, I find it really hard to imagine um, what the questions are we're going to answer. And that's part of why we decided to come into the space early um, because, you know, I've always really enjoyed being in a place where you get to be a part of, of inventing the future as it happens. Um, and so, you know, I think what we'll see is as these projects start to roll out um, that where people want to go next is is sort of the, the questions will will be leading us there and we'll be leading ourselves there with the questions. That was really inelegant. But, um, but you know what I mean? It, it becomes a, an interesting chicken and egg because we're going to build off of each other, right? Um, I talked about this with an editor uh, a little while back. When they first built, uh, when they first built a shelter, uh, there was someone who came in and said, well, this is great. We're not wet anymore. But, you know, we could really come in and put a chair here so someone could have a place to sit. And maybe we could, you know, do something to make the space more beautiful. And that's really where the industry sort of early stages started to emerge from. We don't have a lot of shelters yet. So we don't really know what people are going to do and, and, and what problems they're going to try and solve once we start to see people spending more time in, in these shelters. So, you know, it's hard to imagine where the questions are going to go. I think that it's just going to be a really interesting evolution. So I don't mean to cop out of your question, but, you know, I, I also... Um, well, I said it myself, that we're not clairvoyant. We don't have crystal yeah. balls. You can't possibly, if you did know where everything was going, you'd be rich, so... Yeah, well, that's the goal. Do you have Do you have the questions? <laughs> no, I just think that right now that where we're at in the industry is that the faucet's sort of dripping. People are cautious, which is interesting because we in interior design and architecture follow fashion and we follow art, and they're taking some really prominent positions in this. And so naturally, of course, we'll be kind of walking behind it and catching up. I think the faucet is dripping. I think that very quickly the faucet's probably going to turn on. And that's when those questions that we're working with clients now, where it's it's exploratory, it's with with caution, is maybe going to be turned into, hey, we got to do this and we got to do it fast. Um, and so I'm looking forward to that. I think that'll be an exciting time in our industry. Well, Andrew, you said, you know, it's important to be in a place where you can educate and help help people who are listening and engaging to ask, start asking the right questions. And if I'm right, you're already uh, moving into that with the project you have coming up, right? Uh, you're setting yourself up to be an educator in the form of podcast. You want to talk a bit about that? Yeah. Um, so we've, again, thought of education as a real focus. So um, we're starting a podcast of our own. So it's exciting for you guys to give us like a little bit of uh, a little bit of practice here today. But um, we're going to be launching that on the Sandow Surround Network um, with their team and, you know, bringing on some people who are doing some of the early uh projects and doing early work in the space, just to talk to them about how they got started and, and really to try and do it in plain language and do it in a way um, that comes from the industry. We don't want to bring on technologists or anything like that, but we want to bring on real people who people in this industry will will recognize and, and respect, uh, and they'll be able to hear from them and, and understand what got them started and what they're seeing and, and what they're doing. That sounds awesome. So before we wrap it up, is there anything that we've missed? You know, a, a Luddite like me who never played video games as a kid and knows barely knows how to turn on his computer. Uh, is there anything I missed in uh, exploring this? I think you guys are hitting on all the right notes. Like uh, to, to your last question, you know, this is the early stage where we're figuring out what the questions are. 
Um, we really appreciate you guys just bringing us in to, to have a conversation about where things are at. Um, but I think Tessa's analogy about the faucet is a good one. Um, we do really see the drips starting to come. And, and I, I talked about the snowball rolling down the hill, I think, earlier. But we really do feel that that momentum is coming on um, in the things we're seeing in the press, in the conversations that we're having, in the people that are coming to us. Um, we really see that, that there's, there's an excitement that's starting to build. And when some of these things start to hit the real world um, and, you know, the value t t in the fashion and art industry is already starting to prove itself from a, from a commerce standpoint as well. Um, we just think that the potential is, is pretty limitless and it's just an exciting moment for everyone to get up to speed and understand how they might be able to be able to get involved. So I think that's a great place to end. I, I want to ask you one more question. What would you say to any of our listeners that are interested but kind of scared or hesitant to dip their toe in those waters? Where should they start? I think uh, the easiest answer would be to just start. So Google it, start reading articles, and you start listening to podcasts like this one, join, you know, different metaverse platforms and just play around and see what it's like and, and be open-minded and, and continue to research. Yeah, absolutely. Like you're not going to break anything. Um, mm -hmm. Even well, we've been playing Roblox lately, and just just kind of collect coins. You know, it's it's nothing that's that's terribly. It's the things aren't meant to be are built to be scary. Um, everyone is pushing in the direction of making everything as inclusive as possible. Um, so you know, there's there's nothing that you're going to hurt yourself with by by taking a stab and and by 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 trying. And then I think it. it, it um, People say there's no there's no silly questions. Definitely feel that way. Like ask questions to people in your network who you know. Um, uh, you know, uh, we're always happy to talk to anybody. But there's lots of people out there who are who are happy to answer a question because it is new. Um, and by that token, it's also not defined, which is maybe the coolest part. Is you may feel like you're behind right now, but 12 months from now you could be defining the future because you you just gave yourself the chance to do that, um, and that's really the stage that we're at. There aren't really rules, there aren't really full definitions, um, and so we can just kind of go and play and create. And I think that that's the spirit that this industry is built on, and that's really exciting. So where can people find you? Well, you can find us at our at our website, howstodigby.com. Um, soon you'll be able to find us on the, the uh, Sandow Surround po podcast network. Um, Feel and free to always reach out to us on LinkedIn as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we try to be pretty accessible. And uh, yeah, I appreciate the, uh, the opportunity to come and talk about it. Well, thank you very much for this very interesting conversation. Thank you for your time. And thanks for all your questions, you guys. It's been great chatting with you. Thanks for coming on. Hey, Arno here. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and that you'll come back for more. Please share with your friends and colleagues and remember to subscribe on our website at rvltr.studio. Until next time, ciao.